Welcome to the Vineyard Altoona podcast. If you have any questions or just want more information, you can visit our website at vineyardaltuna.org or any of our social media platforms at Vineyard Altoona. And now, here's Evan with the message. We are continuing our series this week in the book of 1 Peter about how to live as strangers in a foreign land. Peter is writing to the Gentile believers in Asia Minor, and he is instructing them what it means to follow Christ in a culture that does not reflect their values. And we will be in 1 Peter chapter 2 this morning, starting at verse 4. I would encourage you um, to open it up in front of you, whether that's on your phone or in your Bible. If you don't have one and you wanted one, we have some paper copies down here. Don't be afraid to come up and grab one. Um, But we're going to be diving pretty deep into this passage this morning, and so I think it would be helpful to have it open in front of you. 1 Peter chapter 2, starting at verse 4. As you come to him, the living stone, rejected by humans, but chosen by God and precious to him, you also, like living stones, are being built into a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, Offering spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For in scripture it says, See, I lay a stone in Zion, a chosen and precious cornerstone. And the one who trusts in him will never be put to shame. Now to you who believe, this stone is precious. But to those who do not believe... The stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone and a stone that causes people to stumble and a rock that makes them fall. They stumble because they disobey the message, which is also what they were destined for. But you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession, that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. Once you were not a people, but now you are the people of God. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. February 6th, 2005. Anybody know what's important about that date in history? No? It was the Sunday that the Philadelphia Eagles played the New England Patriots in the Super Bowl. The first of two. It was also the day that Evan first had his heart broken. Pretty monumental day in history. I was 14. I had had a crush on a girl for a long time, many years, many, many years. 
Her name is Elise. She, I thought she was wonderful. It was incredible. But I had never, I had never dated anybody. I wasn't allowed. I was homeschooled. Um, yes, you can laugh at that. It's fine. <laughs> I was homeschooled, so I didn't even know what that was. I was like, what's dating? I don't know. I just know I have feelings, lots of them. I don't know what to do with them. And so I'd had this crush on Elise for, for years, and I thought to myself, what, I'm not going to do something about this. And so finally, February 6th, I got up the courage. I was going to tell her how I felt. And so Sunday morning, that's when all good homeschoolers do their dating. Sunday morning after church, I, 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 I pulled her in to a side room, not physically, just asked her to come in the other room. And I said, I know, I know, it's scary. but So I pulled her aside and I said, I like you. And that was it. That's all I had. <laughs> Hadn't really thought it out past that. <laughs> I like you. That's all I got. I don't, I don't know what else to tell you. And she said, okay, I will, I will let you know later. And I said, okay. Evan was 14. Evan was homeschooled. Evan didn't realize that was a bad sign. Evan is now older. Evan gets it. That's probably not a good sign. If you're in this situation, pause. It's not a good answer. But, but I took that answer, and I was hopeful about it. I thought, okay, maybe, she just need, maybe she's conflicted, just needs some time to think about it. And so we were having a Super Bowl party that night at a friend's house, and so I went to his house and, and waited all day, just waited, 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 thinking, what's going to happen? What's she going to say? How's this going to go? And finally, the, 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 the football game began, and she showed up, and she didn't talk to me. And I sat around going, maybe she's nervous. I don't know what's going to happen. Again, I'm 14, homeschooled. But I thought, as the night went on, I realized this isn't, this isn't, this isn't the, the way I wanted this to go. This isn't it. And so this time I had a buddy of mine pull her into the other room. And we were there, and I said, listen, I, I, just, I just need an answer. I just need you to tell me. I know it's probably not good, but just tell me what it is. And she said, yeah, I just don't feel that same way about you. I said, okay. And I went back out and I sat down and I tried to survive the rest of the party, just keeping my cool. But that same night, Elise started dating another guy. I know, I know, right? <laughs> the nerve. <laughs> and it's crazy because that guy, I, I didn't like him very much. Um, and, and fun story, we're now best friends, and I was the best man in his wedding, which was not Elise, it was somebody else. I don't think I could have stomached that, but. But it was a, a moment in my life. It was an experience. It was a formative experience. I made a vow that night, not knowingly, but I made a vow that I was unlovable, that I wasn't cool enough or good-looking enough or whatever enough for someone to love and care about me. There was something about that other guy that made him attractive but not me. And that is the story that I lived with for years. 
and it affected how I showed up in relationship with other people. Because in the back of my mind, I always thought to myself, I'm, I'm not really lovable. I'm, I'm not cool enough or whatever enough. Years later, I was reflecting on that experience as part of a, uh, a storied workshop program. And I was reflecting with a counselor and he pointed out two things about that story that I'd never thought about before. First of all, he said, do you see how brave you were? Do you see how brave you were? You had strong emotion and you got the courage to tell her how you felt. You put yourself in harm's way in a vulnerable position. That's bravery. You're brave. I've never thought of that before. And he also said, do you see that she dishonored your bravery with her cowardice? She dishonored your bravery with her cowardice. I had never thought about that before. Now, we were 14. I'm not saying that she made this drastic life mistake by not, you know, honoring me. I don't lay blame at her feet. I don't want anybody to hear that, but I, I realized that that story was not quite how I remembered it, or at the very least, it could be remembered a different way, that it wasn't that I was unlovable and that nobody could ever love me, it's actually that I was brave, and I had the courage to speak into existence how I felt, and to put myself in a vulnerable position to be in relationship with another person. And that that person actually dishonored me by not responding and honoring that gift that I had given. Although some may not see those things as gifts, that's okay. But I'm not here to talk about the psychology of love. That experience, that story shaped the way that I showed up in the world. And understanding that story differently reshaped me and allowed me to live into a different story. Moving forward, I saw myself differently, and I lived in the world differently. And I would say that that is part of the journey that allowed me to marry the beautiful woman that I am married to today. We all have stories like this. We've all experienced things in life that shape the way that we show up in the world. You see, our identity or the way we show up in the world depends on the stories we believe we are a part of and the role that we believe we play. Advertisers know this. Think of Apple's Mac versus PC commercials. Most of you are probably familiar with these commercials. The, the question they're asking in subtle terms is, do you want to be the cool, creative person who owns a Mac? Or do you want to be the clunky, awkward nerd who owns a PC? Modern marketing has strengthened the link or has linked our identity to the products that they are selling. They don't say, buy a Mac. They say, I am a Mac. That is my identity. Or think about cleaning commercials. I like to clean. 
don't ask me to clean your house. I don't really want to clean your house, but I like to clean my house. And, and so those cleaning commercials, they target me sometimes. But think about it. We're not actually buying cleaning supplies. We're buying the story that we too can have sparkling clean houses because that's the story we will live if we have that product. I mean, let's be real with ourselves. How many of you have ever bought an magic or bought a magic eraser thinking all of a sudden your house was going to be immaculate? Like this one little sponge thingy is going to solve all my problems. I have. It's a true story. Although there is a place downtown that has these little sponge thingies. There really isn't. I'll tell you about that later. Anyway, politics have largely become the dominant stories of our day. The progressive story of the march towards utopia or the conservative story of the need to protect and defend traditional values often shape how we understand the world and influence our day-to-day decisions in various ways. Often we are unaware of the stories we're living, but the reality is that we are all living stories every day. There's a movie that recently premiered titled Fool's Paradise. Some of you may have heard of this, some of you maybe not. The premise of the movie is that there is a man who can't speak and seems to have no understanding of who he is or how the world functions. He's discharged from a mental institution onto the streets of L.A., and it turns out he's a dead ringer for a famous movie star. And so he gets thrust into this adventure of Hollywood stardom where people start thinking that he is this incredible actor and and he gets rich and famous and all of these sorts of things, but he the whole time really has no idea what's going on. Even his name is given to him by mistake as somebody walking across stage yells at an aide, Latte Pronto, and somebody thinks that this man's name is Latte Pronto. It's a really bizarre thing. If you watch the trailer, it, it, it interests me that, that this movie, I think, can say something about our reality that maybe we don't pick up on. And that is that we are all living stories and sometimes we are unaware of them. And that if you don't decide what story you're living in, the world will write one for you. The world will write stories for us. Many of you have heard us talk about EF, emotionally focused. Um, we do the program a couple times a year here at the church, and um, during it, we reflect on our formative experiences, stories like um, my sixth grade dating misadventures. Um, and we discern the vows that we made as a result of those experiences. And the process, as challenging and sometimes frustrating as it can be, allows us not only to name the ways that we show up in the world, but to work on telling new stories, better stories with our lives. In our passage today, Peter is reorient, excuse me, reorienting Gentile Christians to see themselves as members of the family of Abraham by faith. In doing so, they are, enabled to, they are enabled to see their sufferings as part of a larger story of chosen exiles, sojourning for a new home. He is imparting to them a new story that they can live into, an identity 
that will help them make sense of the world they live in and to remain steadfast when challenged. I found as I worked through this text, as I said earlier, that it was bursting at the seams with depth and richness. So I'm going to do my best to unpack it, just begin unpacking it for us. But in reality, we could spend a whole year simply dwelling in these verses. Derek um, has challenged us, Derek and Jerry challenged us to spend, um, you know, 15, 20, 30 minutes each week reading through the entire book of 1 Peter. I think it's a great practice. I've tried it. It's, it's hard, but it's good to sit and read it and just soak it in. And as we soak in Scripture, new things are open to us. And that's the story of, of how I unpack this this week. So again, I would encourage you to keep the text open in front of you as we comb through it this morning. Let's just start right there in verse 4. As you come to him, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God, chosen and precious. It seemed like an odd place for this passage to start. I looked at the context trying to figure out where this is coming from. It seems to just jump right into this section here. As you come to him. It was this phrase that, as I slowed down and, and marinated in the passage, that started to rise up and come to my attention. As you come to him. This is a process. It's an ongoing process of building relationship. It's not a one-time thing, but it happens over time, this identity shift, this formation happens as part of a journey. It's not a, a one-time, ha-ha, now I believe this thing. I didn't rethink my dating escapades and then go, oh, I'm actually a great guy. No, it took me time to go, you know what, I'm brave. I, I'm, I'm, I'm worth loving. I mean something to somebody. It's a process. Um, I don't know if any of you follow Dude Dad on social media. He's a really cool dude that, you know, shares stuff about dadhood. He has a video called uh, Couple More Days Construction. And he said, people often ask us why we're called Couple More Days Construction. And he says, it's because we're always almost done. There's always a project that's not quite completed. Dads, anybody? I have like six of these projects in my house where I'm like, it's, yeah, thank you. It's like you got a project, you're like, this is like mostly done. I just need to to do a few more things on it. We know what, that, what that's like as a church, don't we? <laughs> so this is a process. It doesn't happen instantly. It happens over time. The becoming happens along the way. Famous tennis player Arthur Ashe once said, success is a journey, not a destination. The doing is often more important than the outcome. And that may, not be, that may not be 100% true for us who follow Christ, but the importance of the journey stands as we come to him. Him being the living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God, chosen and precious. That is Jesus. And we'll come back to that in a little bit. But moving forward, what is happening as we come to him? So what? As we come to him, I often find there's, there's uh, commas. I had to think about what they were called there for a minute. Commas, you just take out what's in the middle of the commas and it helps me understand what's going on. As you come to him, you also, like living stones, are being built up 
as a spiritual house. You are being built up into a spiritual house. So as we come to him, as we come to Jesus, we're being built up into this spiritual house. Peter is using a metaphor of the temple. The temple uh, for the Jewish people was the place where God dwelled. It was, it was instituted by God in the wilderness. Um, and it closely reflected the Garden of Eden. If you study the, the temple and, and how it is designed and everything that's supposed to happen there, it very closely resembles the Garden of Eden. There are cherubim that guard the entrance. There, there are decorative cherubim that guard the entrance to the temple. And inside, it's filled with images of trees, just like the garden. It is the place where God dwells, as I said. The place where heaven and earth are one. And it is filled with God's blessings. It's from the temple that God's holiness, goodness, love, forgiveness, and grace will flow into all the world. And what Peter says is we who are coming to him are being built into a spiritual temple. The place where God dwells. Peter is imparting to these Gentiles that they are not just random people, but they are in fact becoming the place where God seeks to dwell. I'm a metaphors guy, so this really speaks to me. I'm like, yeah, I get that. When the Holy Spirit comes, the presence of God dwells in us just like the temple, becoming a place that emanates the presence of God and his restorative blessing. Peter is saying to these Gentile Christians, you are the place where God dwells. You are becoming that place. Moving forward, he says, you are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, offering spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God. The priests and the temple are gateways that connect God to people and people to God. Um, I'm going to stop here to, to highly recommend that you check out the Bible Project. If you've not seen the Bible Project, it's on YouTube. It's a, it's a, it's a group of folks that put together videos um, that explain some of these key biblical concepts. And, and they do just an absolutely phenomenal job of unpacking this stuff in a visual way that you can you can tell, I would highly recommend it. But um, so in this, in this priesthood, again, this is where we could spend like years studying the temple and the priests, and I, I'm trying to unpack it in like 30 minutes, and it's, it's, it's difficult. So I, I ask you to keep digging, keep going. But if we look at this priesthood, this is one of the things I found really incredible. Adam and Eve, when they are placed in the Garden of Eden in Genesis, are commanded to work and to keep the garden. Okay. This garden is the place where God dwells and Adam and Eve are put there to work it and to keep it. Now we just said that the temple, the tabernacle, was a place where God dwells. And it was designed to reflect this garden of Eden. And inside this garden of Eden, God put Adam and Eve to work it and to keep it. And subsequently, God commanded there to be priests who 
worked and kept the temple. The role of the priest was to represent humanity to God and God to humanity, which was the role of Adam and Eve, to represent God to his creation and to represent his creation to him. The connection here for me is so deep and so rich. Again, I'm a metaphors guy. So it's interesting that when um, Jesus comes around, these priests that God had instituted to work and to keep the temple had actually fallen by the wayside. They weren't living up to what God had really intended for them to do. Jesus goes around forgiving people and restoring them so that they can re-enter the temple, so they can come back into the temple, which was the priest's job. The priests were the ones that were doing those things so that people could be right with God. And Jesus steps onto the scene and becomes a sort of priest. And this is what Peter says, we were the Gentile believers in Asia Minor are becoming a royal priesthood. The charge of the first humans was to spread the garden, to be fruitful and multiply. As we are united to Christ, we are restored to our first calling as royal priests and rulers in the place where heaven and earth are together. We take up that mantle again, spreading the garden, extending the rule and reign of God. So the honor is for you who believe. You are invited, you and I are invited to play a part in God's cosmic plan for the redemption of all things. So, Paul is saying, or excuse me, Peter is saying to these Gentile Christians, you are the place where God dwells. And your job is to be the ones who bring redemption to the world. This is who you are. This is the story that you are a part of. He says this about these Gentile Christians, but he continues. Verse 7, he says, Now to you who believe the stone is precious, but for those who do not, the stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. My dad used to take me to the video store where we would rent VHS tapes. Good old days. And it would take me forever. I would look at the back of almost every movie in the store. It was a real small place too, but I was thorough. So I'd look at, all, at the back of almost every one of them, trying to figure out which one I wanted. I'd read the description. I was tortured, trying to choose. Yet the time would always come when my dad told me that I had to make a decision. And I would. I would choose one that I thought was going to be better than the rest. It was my choice. In doing so, I rejected all the others that were still sitting on the shelf. The stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. You ever pick a movie and you watch it and it ends and you go, man, I should not have picked that one. That one was not good. And then you watch the one you thought you wanted to watch and you're like, that's the one I should pick. Yeah, I haven't seen it in a while. 
I've been connecting with a number of alumni over the last few months, asking them for support for the ministry that I do on campus. Um, one of them responded uh, a couple weeks ago that they weren't really religious anymore. That it, and they, in fact, subscribed to a more humanistic philosophy of reality. This person has rejected Jesus as Lord and Savior of the universe. It's simply a matter of fact. It doesn't have to be loaded down with emotion. They have simply said, I do not believe that this story about Jesus is true, but I believe this other story is true. He has rejected the biblical narrative of the world and embraced a different view. As I was sitting on this, this section right here, the stone that the builders rejected, I got this image of like a builder picking up a stone and looking it over and, and trying to determine what to use it for and deciding, no, I don't want that one. I want a different one. And then that stone that was willfully rejected becoming the stone upon which everything hinged. The rejection of this former student is not unique. I was on a call with a campus ministry leader from England a few weeks ago, and she told me a story of when she was in college and invited a friend to church with her. His response was that he didn't think Christians really existed anymore. He thought it was like a, a, an old-timey thing that nobody really did anymore. It's extreme, I know, but the UK is much farther along the track of postmodernism and post-Christian culture than we are here in the United States. But the truth is, is that we are on the same track. The largest growing religious affiliation in the United States is the nuns, meaning those who don't claim any affiliation with religion. The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. And a stone that causes people to stumble and a rock that makes them fall. As we continue into the 21st century, I believe that we will continue to face more and more opposition to the way of Jesus. Being a disciple of Christ will soon no longer be a casual, common identity, but will be considered an oddity at best and a threat at worst. What it cannot remain is unimportant and unexamined. Dallas Willard, in his book, The Renovation of the Heart, said we should be very sure that the ruined soul is not one who has missed a few more or less important theological points and will flunk a theological exam at the end of life. Hell is not an oops or a slip. One does not miss heaven by a hair, but by constant effort to avoid and escape God. Outer darkness, as the Bible calls it, is for one who everything said and done wants it. Whose entire orientation has slowly and firmly set itself against God. And therefore against how the university, or excuse me, universe actually is. To those who do not believe, the stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. 
and a stone that causes people to stumble and a rock that makes them fall. They stumble because they disobey the message, which is also what they were destined for. So Peter has given these Gentile Christians a new identity as living stones being built into a temple, a place where God dwells, and as royal priests with responsibility in this temple, with a new mission, a new cause. And not only that, he has imparted some idea of those who have rejected this. Because again, keep in mind, these, these Christians are facing persecution. There are those around them who have rejected the faith, that have rejected them and Jesus. And, and again, I think that is going to become more and more our reality as time goes on. And this new identity is all well and good, but as I combed through this passage, what continued to rise to the surface was the preeminence of Jesus Christ. Um, it's hard to explain this in, in any short term. I'm going to try, but I'm going through what uh, a weird point in life some people might call it a midlife crisis. I'm not really sure. That might be it. Um, but but as, I've, as I've talked to others and done some researching, um, some call it the dark night of the soul. Um, and I don't mean to be super dramatic about that. But I've been wrestling with spiritual and existential questions about reality and about who God is and what that all means. And, and um, what I keep coming back to in this journey as I, as I continue to ask these questions and and find a sure footing for my faith. What I keep coming back to is Jesus. That it all depends on Jesus. If he is who he said he is, then everything changes. If he isn't who he said it, he is, then it all falls apart. It's kind of like the, like the definition of cornerstone. Like Jesus sits at the middle of all of this and everything hinges on him. If you're not familiar with cornerstones, as I use this term, it's the stone in the middle of an arch that all of the weight sits on. So it has to be perfect. It has to be flawless. It has to be able to withstand the weight of the structure. And Peter as he imparts this new identity, continues to point back to Jesus. He is the living stone, rejected by humans, but chosen by God and precious to him. It is through him that we offer spiritual sacrifices. And it is in him who we trust and will not be put to shame. Hebrews 4, 14 through 16 says, Therefore, since we have a great high priest who has ascended into heaven, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold firmly to the faith that we profess. 
For we do not have a high priest who is unable to empathize with our weaknesses, but we have one who has been tempted in every way just as we are, yet he did not sin. Let us then approach God's throne of grace with confidence so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. This new identity that Peter offers to these Gentile believers rests on the foundation of Christ. And that foundation is strong and secure, and because of him we can come before the Father. In this passage, Peter is inviting the Gentiles into a new identity, into a new story. Inviting them to see themselves as part of a, of a new thing that God is doing. But also as part of a, an old thing that God has been doing. It's like putting on a new pair of glasses. We're remembering a story from our past differently. This new identity is of a new temple built on the foundation of Jesus himself. A chosen race, part of the family of Abraham. A royal priesthood, a new kingdom of priests, representing God to the nation, nations and the nations to God. And a holy nation, a people for his own possession. For people with this new identity, it changes everything. The old story is that God doesn't care about us. We must be doing something wrong. Why are we being persecuted? God must have abandoned us. But the new story is that we are chosen and holy people in exile, being built into a new temple, offering spiritual sacrifices to God. And this suffering is for a purpose. Jesus was rejected, but he is chosen and precious to God. I am being rejected. I also am chosen and precious to God. I love the way that Peter ends this section. He says, but you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession, that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. Once you were not a people, but now you are the people of God. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Two things I want to point out in this section and then finish up. Starting with the second part. Once you were not a people, but now you are the people of God. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Peter is referring to what is one of my favorite stories in the entire Bible, and that's the book of Hosea. If you're unfamiliar with the book of Hosea, God tells the prophet Hosea to go and to find a prostitute and to marry her, which is like wild for biblical literature in my idea. Like growing up, I ne like just didn't fit my conceptions of what scripture is. I don't know if that's true for you. And so God tells Hosea to go marry this prostitute um, and then to have children with her while she is actively unfaithful. Let me read to you just real quick from uh, Hosea chapter 1, verse, starting at verse 6. It says, 
Gomer, who is prostitute, conceived again and gave birth to a daughter. Then the Lord said to Hosea, call her Lo-Ruamah. I think that's right. Which means not loved. Can you imagine having a kid and naming them not loved? I don't recommend it. For I will no longer show love to Israel. That I should at all forgive them. Yet I will show love to Judah, and I will save them, not by bow, sword, or battle, or by horses or horsemen, but I, the Lord their God, will save them. After she had weaned Lo-Ruamah, Gomer had another son. Then the Lord said, call him Lo-Ami, which means not my people. Again, not great name choices. For you are not my people. I am not your God. You see, Peter is, is referring to this Old Testament prophet who, who the people of that day probably would have been familiar with. He's alluding to this whole story. So in this one little section, and I love this, in this one little section, like two sentences, Peter is, is imparting a whole story. He says, once you were not a people, once you were not loved by God, which is the story of Hosea. But here in Hosea 2, verse 23, God's tone shifts and he says, I will plant her for myself in the land, her being Israel. I will show my love to the one I called, not my loved one. I will say to those called, not my people, you are my people. And they will say, you are my God. This is why I really struggle with this passage. Because in this whole section of, of Second Peter, it's like brimming with richness of Old Testament stories of God's faithfulness to people that had walked away from him. And it's continually telling this story of God's goodness and love. I had a friend that used to say the Bible is not about you, but it is for you. 1 Peter 2 is not written to you or me, and it's not about you or me. But the invitation to a new identity is extended to each of us as well. We are each invited into this new life, this new story that God is telling All of this is for a purpose. This whole identity that has been given to us, that we have been invited into, is for a purpose. You are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession, that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. In recent years, I've become fascinated with the story of the Thai soccer team that was rescued from the Tam Luang Cave. June 23rd, 2019, 12 boys and assistant coach from the Wild Boars soccer team went into the Tam Luang Cave to celebrate one of the boys' birthday. Many of you are probably familiar with this story. 
A surprise monsoon caused the cave to flood, trapping the team over two miles underground. A general rule of thumb in diving, as you in cave diving, is that you use one-third of your air on the way in and a third of your air on the way out, leaving a third as reserve. And I, I, I come to this, I realize I'm transitioning well. Um, as the boys were trapped, hundreds of people came in to help. Many of you are probably, again, familiar with this story. Hundreds and hundreds of people, volunteers came in to help. And, and cave divers went in to the cave to try and find the team to see if they were still alive. But the water continued to come down and the cave continued to film. Uh, to fill, excuse me, and, and again, as I said, the general rule of thumb is that you use a third of your air on the way in and a third on the way out. That way you have a third in reserve. But the divers that eventually found the boys had gone way past that, way past it in order to find these boys. It took the divers nine days to locate them. It was a six-hour dive to get to them against the current. And it was a five-hour journey back. I spend like two, three hours in the car, and I'm done. I can't imagine six hours in murky water where I can't see. A plan was devised to sedate the boys and carry them back as packages through the cave. It was incredibly dangerous, the million things that could go wrong, but there simply was no other foreseeable option. And on July 10th, 17 days after they were first trapped, all 14 were rescued. Again, I highly encourage you to check out the story. And this is where I come to an end. This is our story. This is the identity that we are invited into. That God in his rich mercy and love did not give up on us, but invited us back into relationship. That went beyond the normal, that did the unthinkable, that rescued us from total darkness and depravity. so that we could declare the glory of him. That you and I who follow Christ that have accepted this gift, we are being returned to our original calling. We are becoming like living stones, the temple that God dwells in. And our calling is to be royal priests in the world, serving God, restoring Eden. I love the depth and the richness of the biblical story. And as it becomes our story, it should, and I think it does, change the way we see everything around us. Thank you again for choosing the Vineyard Altoona podcast. We're so excited to see how God will release his kingdom in and through you today. For the glory of Jesus Christ. With this, be blessed, and we'll see you next time.